Hello? Hey, Rich, it's Larson. You got a minute? Sure, Larson. What's up? Hello and welcome to Got A Minute Podcast. This is Larson Hicks. I'm joined by Rich Lusk and uh, our guest today is Jason Cherry. And uh, he is the author of the, his latest book is The Making of Evangelical Spirituality, uh, which is, uh, it seems like it's maybe number two of a trilogy, I think. I think there's a trilogy in the works here uh, that maybe Jason doesn't know about. The Spirit's leading me to tell you that, Jason. Thank you. Um, I'll record that. Yeah, so... That's a that's a that's just a feeling I get. That's just a sense. I feel like a still small voice is telling me that. Um, so uh, all joking aside, we're really excited to have uh, Jason here. And uh, Jason and I served together as elders at Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville. Uh, Jason is a uh, is a high school teacher at uh, Providence Classical School in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, and is a grad of. Uh, has his master's of theology from uh, from RTS, correct, Jason? That's right, Reformed Theological Seminary. I got that right. Awesome. All right, so you've got you've got the bona fides to be here uh, with me. Um, I mean, you know, the bar is pretty high, um, but uh, but uh, you also have written um, a book about altar call, uh, the 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 culture of conversionism and and the history of the altar call. So it's kind of uh, book number one of what I think is your trilogy. Um, but yeah, so it's great to have you on the show, sir. And, uh, Rich, it's good to see you again. It's been a little bit since we last, uh, recorded one of these things. Yeah. Great to be with you guys and great to have you with. Yes. Well, I, uh, I tried to listen to every episode of got a minute. And usually when I do, I send it to three or four people and say, you've got to listen to this and we're going to talk about it. Because you guys are touching on the issues that people are talking about that need they need edification and instruction on, and it usually leads to really good conversation with folks. So it's a thrill to be on with you guys. Thanks, Jason. Good to hear. I figured I, I I was wondering who those who those downloads were. That explains it. Um, no, I I uh, it's been this this show's been a lot of fun, and uh, I've been really looking forward to this conversation with you, um, Jason, because I, I think this book is really important. Uh, you and I have been talking about it for a long time. I I, I uh, I'm sad to say that I I'm, I'm coming having not completely finished it. I'm very close to finished, but I left my copy on a plane on a business trip a, a couple weeks ago, which uh, which is actually the second. A really, really good theology book that I've left on a plane. Um, the first being a book called Pato Faith. Um, <laughs> You're um, a good company, Jason, or or disaster. <laughs> I count it as good company. No doubt, whoever found those books, read them, was immediately converted, and grew in wisdom and stature with God and man. The That's world right. will never be the same because you left that book on the plane, Larson. That's right. So I will inevitably own multiple copies now of both of your books. Um, a great way so, to drive up sales, just have yeah. people misplace them. <laughs> yeah, so you should encourage people. This is a great read to take on a, on a trip, on a business trip. Just take this with you, read it on the plane. Perfect for that. Um, all right, gentlemen. So my, you know, unfortunately, I had tons of underlines and marginalia and things um, from the first half or so of the book. Um, that I planned on on running through as we we're going going about this, but but maybe let's just 
If you don't mind, could we just back up here? Jason, tell us a little bit about your own background. I mean, you're you're you went to RTS. Does that mean you're a you're a dyed in the wool reform guy? Is that your story? I wouldn't put it that way exactly. I like so many was raised in uh, a Baptist church, Southern Baptist Church. You know, it's the largest denomination in America. So that you know, that's a lot of people's story. Uh, so, you know, it was a slow, gradual process coming into the Reformed faith, uh, small steps along the way, and going to Reformed Theological Seminary was, of course, part of that journey. Uh, but, you know, one of the things that, that attracted me to this subject was the fact that I've, I've spent a lot of time around different folks from different denominational backgrounds, uh, you know, in, in Baptist churches, uh, with non-denominational churches, Presbyterian churches, reform folks, even in what you would consider reform conservative churches. And one of the commonalities was I heard a lot of people use the language, God told me, God spoke to me. And it always struck me as interesting that it cut across the denominational spectrum. It's certainly more common in you know, a charismatic church or maybe kind of a Baptistic church than it is maybe in like a CREC church. But uh, but it's still it cut across the denominational spectrum, and I I wondered why, and that was that was kind of where my research started. There was no book about there was no book answering why, but when you start looking at it, there's about a dozen books published every decade trying to teach people how to hear the voice of God, usually from these charismatic backgrounds. These books are everywhere, conferences are everywhere. You know the Bethel Group and, and other groups that do this. It's a really big part of evangelical spirituality, and I just had a lot of curiosity about it. Mm-hmm. Jason, I bought a copy of your book, and uh, but it just came in, so I have not had a chance to read it yet. So I'm completely uninitiated. How would you summarize the thesis of your book? How do you answer that, you know, that 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 question, or or when people make that claim, God told me X or God told me Y? What what's your thesis as far as how we should respond to that? Yeah, and, and the book is primarily it's primarily trying to explain why, like how did we get to a point where this is the ubiquitous assumption among so many evangelicals. And so, and so what I'm doing is looking at it from three perspectives, kind of a cultural analysis, uh, a, a historical analysis, and then there is a theological analysis that is a little more kind of critique, a little more formative as well about how to address the issue theologically. Um, and, but I think a lot of it does start with just kind of understanding where this came from. I think, I think when an American evangelicals you know, it's really a peculiar thing what American evangelicalism is, if you know the history of it. But I think people that grow up in American churches just think, no, that what we believe, this is what the Bible teaches, and this is what's right. And they don't understand that, no, there was a, there was a process of how we got to a lot of the assumptions we have about a lot of the, the mainstay, you know, theological and just regular issues in churches. And I think it is somewhat disarming when people learn that no, th- this isn't always how it was, and this came to this came to be in a certain way, and there's a story to it. And I think telling that story and helping people to see the influences that led you to assume that that you are a mature Christian if God speaks to you outside of the Bible is part of the critique. Is part of just helping people to see that this uh, maybe maybe there is something more, something different for your walk with the Lord than this. Mm-hmm. Jason, would you characterize yourself as a cessationist when it comes to revelatory gifts? You know, in some levels, I find the, the two categories a little uh, <laughs> a, a little wanting, it, just in the sense that, I mean, yeah, I probably would, would classify myself as an a cessationist with exceptions. 
you know, and, and I think uh, part of what you see in Acts, for example, is that when the gospel goes to new areas, there's a big Holy Spirit event, you know, uh, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if that's still how God operates and that when the gospel goes to, to areas where it's not already established, that it's accompanied with Holy Spirit events. And I've, and I've heard, you know, testimony from firsthand people in India and Africa that say these things, and I regarded them as, you know, reliable testimony, and I didn't walk away skeptical of those things, and I think theologically I made sense of it with that interpretation of Acts. But one of the things I wanted to do in my book was I think the issue actually is not entirely solved by the cessationist, non-cessationist debate. In other words, I think there's, there's several layers of critique to this issue that even if you are a non-cessationist, you still have a couple of things you have to prove before you can say that uh, Christians, regular Christians, should expect to hear from God outside of Scripture as just a, as a matter of course. And, and part of my thinking there, and this is uh, part of what I do in chapter uh, chapter thirteen, but part of my thinking there is there's really an ascending order of unlikeliness to the issue of does God speak to me regularly, and should I pursue spirituality where this is the central you know uh, the central maturity that I have. So first, of course, is you would have to prove that New Testament prophecy continues today. And, that, and that's what you were basically asking about, Rich, you know, is the cessationist, non-cessationist thing. But even if you were to say New Testament prophecy continues today, then you would have to prove that New Testament prophecy is supposed to be normative for the people of God today. And the reason I think that's really difficult to prove is because when you go back even to the Old Testament, that you know, it's kind of Bible made easy to say, well, God spoke to Moses, so he should speak to me. Well, in reality, in the Old Testament, God is revealing himself in that very special way to just a few people. And those prophets were killed, many of them. And so I don't know if that's something that we all want to pursue. <laughs> but, but, you know, so just to say, well, you know, God spoke to some people in the Bible, therefore we should all expect it today. Even that doesn't prove what I think people think it does. And so, you would then, so you'd have to prove that New Testament prophecy is meant to be normative, when in reality, even going back to the Old Testament, uh, these are exceptions. These are not the rules, and they're very special exceptions. So that, but if you were to then able to prove that, so if you could prove that New Testament prophecy continues today, and then you could prove that New Testament prophecy is meant to be normative, the third thing you would have to prove is that New Testament prophecy is the same thing as God speaks to me when I'm in my prayer closet with my cafe latte with my yoga pants on. And, I, and so I think it's an ascending order of unlikeliness. I don't think, I don't think you're going to have a lot of success proving that all three of those things check the box so that this is supposed to be the regular, you know, the, the regular expectation of Christian spirituality. And one of the reasons is because you see on that third point, you know, it, it, New Testament prophecy, it, is that really even the same thing as what you hear in, in evangelical circles when people talk about how God spoke to me? Well, there is a sort of New Testament prophecy. You see prophets in the apostolic period. They're addressed pretty explicitly in 1 Corinthians 14. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 3, we're given three characteristics of that prophecy. And when you look at that, so this is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, verse 3. Three, it says, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So that means if whatever that is actually continues into the present day, that's the three characteristics. 
And, and but usually today when people are talking about God spoke to me and all this, it's it's you know it's about should I go to Alabama or Auburn. You know, it's about these. It's almost about the minutia of daily life, which I don't think classifies for what what these New Testament prophets, whatever they were in the New Testament, whatever they were doing there aside beside the apostles for that limited period of time. <clears throat> I don't think whatever's happening in American evangelicalism even even checks the box there. Actually, really interesting. Uh, you know, as a pastor, uh, I've heard the same kind of thing. People will will you know, say, God told me, and then fill in the blank. And uh, usually my sense is, well, this is what they want to do anyway, and they're putting this veneer of spirituality over it, like God has somehow affirmed them in this decision. But what's interesting, you know, and, and there are certainly people who would say, oh, well, that's really the mark of mature spirituality is when you can hear from God outside of the Bible. I would actually argue, if anything, it's got to be the reverse. Uh, what God expects when we mature is for us to grow in wisdom, yeah. where we can make our own decision and, and, and take ownership and responsibility for that decision. And, uh, you know, so uh, it seems to me that for a lot of people, God told me is actually a substitute for Christian maturity. God told mm. me is a substitute for wisdom. If God, if I have God like a GPS yeah. guiding around my every decision, whispering in my ear, which, you know, which turn to take next, which decision to make, I never need any wisdom. I don't need to grow to maturity. Uh, I might as well still have a parent telling me what to do, you know, or a teacher telling me what to do because, but I'm not making any decisions for myself actually. So it seems to me that's the opposite of maturity. Uh, that if you're mature, you're going to be to the point where you can make your own decision and it will be a godly decision and a righteous decision that aligns with scripture, but mm -hmm. you'll be making it because you've internalized the truth of scripture and you've internalized a proper understanding of the world and who God is and who you are. And so you can make a good decision without having to have somebody explicitly tell you you what to do. Yeah. Um, so it seems to me that actually the, the God told me thing is a crutch for people who are immature and who lack wisdom. Yeah. And probably in some cases who do want to put a veneer of spirituality over their decision. I, you know, um, I know Mark Driscoll is super controversial, but this is one thing that I noticed with, um, you know, when, when, when Driscoll's whole ministry kind of exploded, you know, a lot of people think the problem with, with, with Driscoll is that he talked about, you know, masculinity and femininity in a certain way or sex in a certain way. That kind of, I don't think that's anywhere close to his actual problem. Actually, a lot of the stuff he said on uh, things like those topics were, were, were pretty decent, I think. But I think where he got into trouble is, you know, he did not have an accountability structure in place, what we would call a like say a presbyterial structure uh, in place where there's accountability and uh, and and there's a kind of you know there's a conciliar form of government because there's wisdom and a multitude of counselors that kind of thing. But it stood out to me in in reading and listening to accounts of how his ministry imploded that he would often do this. God told me that Mars Hill should do X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Well, at that point you can't have any more argument uh, because if you at, to, at that point then to argue with Mark Driscoll is to argue with God. Right. And if you disagree, then you're disagreeing not just with Mark, but with God. And you've cut off any possibility of having a mature, reasoned discussion about it. You know, it's kind of like playing a trump card. Yeah. And now there's no further discussion that can be had. I mean, I would say in a case like that, well, I don't think God told you that. He didn't tell me that. So we ought to, you know, we just have. In fact, it kind of reminds me of, um, I don't know if this is apocryphal or real. And maybe you've heard this story before, Jason. But, um, you know, when Charles Spurgeon had the largest. Uh, congregation in the world, the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, uh, very famous you know, preacher, obviously, in his own day. And uh, somebody came to him and said, 
Pastor Spurgeon, God has told me that I am supposed to preach in your pulpit this Sunday. And Spurgeon said, well, God hasn't told me anything about it, so you're not, <laughs> which I thought was exactly the right response, you know, uh, to push back like that, that that's just not how God works. If you want to have a rational discussion and give me some reasons why you think God would want you to preach in my pulpit, then that's something we can discuss and we can debate whether or not that's right or wrong. But just to say God told me, no, that doesn't cut it. I don't think I told you that. Because I don't, I mean, for one thing, you know, I would say I don't think God speaks to people that way. I don't think we ought to be pursuing private revelation uh, right. in that kind of way. I, I do agree with your nuance on the cessation question. I, I, you know, I am a cessationist, but I still believe strange things happen. And if they're going to happen, more often than not, they're going to happen on the frontier mission field. Now, I've seen some other things, my, you know, myself, in my own life, that might be considered, say, a miraculous healing or something like that in response to prayer. And we could say that, the, you know, things like that still happen for sure. Uh, but new revelation, are we looking for 3 Corinthians or 4 John? Uh, no, we're not. God is not. I think you can actually make a really strong exegetical argument from the New Testament itself for the cessation of special revelation in 70 AD. Um, and and that, you know, that's an argument that if listeners aren't familiar with, Larson, maybe this is some, something we can talk about someday. But, um, you know, that's, I, I think you can make that argument. Mm. Um, some people try to argue, it seems to me, for a lesser kind of prophecy, like maybe a fallible kind of prophecy. But at that point, what's the difference between what you might call prophecy and wisdom, or what you might call, pro and we could debate whether or not it is wisdom, but uh, if you're going to call it prophecy uh, and then redefine prophecy to mean something that's fallible, I don't see much point in that. You know, it, does, it seems to have watered it down to the point where what, what help is that if we still have to analyze it and discuss it? If you just called it a, an opinion, it, it would be no different. Yeah, you're, and I, I think you're exactly right on a lot of those points. And in, in terms of the, you know, what's some of the what's some of the, the the theological arguments in favor of you know God speaks to me today, uh, you know, you're touching on some of them, and, and and I don't know that they hold water all the way through. You know, you know, some will point to you know, uh, it says desire the greater gifts, you know, desire prophecy. Why would God tell us that? If it wasn't meant to continue, but I think you're right. You know, the end of the age, if that's AD 70, then that is kind of putting a stamp of time on some of those things. And I think that's the argument you're alluding to. Uh, one of the more creative arguments that I interacted with in the book was from Amos Young. He actually spoke at the Nevin lecture some years ago, and that's when I first was familiar with him. I was there in the audience and um, was was taken with his argument, the creativity of it, and went and read read his book about. Um, basically a pneumatic hermeneutics. And his, his, uh, his take on it is pretty interesting. He basically says that in Acts 2 at Pentecost, we get a paradigm for how we should interpret Scripture. And basically what he argues there is that Peter uh, appropriates the Old Testament in a way that the Old Testament authors didn't think their prophecies would be used for, and that and that Peter did so in a way that was um, <clears throat> that was basically accounting for his unique context, and in so doing, we too, all of us, even into the post-apostolic age, should uh, and should feel free with certain guardrails that he puts up. Should feel free to interpret the Bible um, in a way that maybe was not originally intended by the author, but fits our current circumstances. So I thought that was one of the more creative charismatic arguments in favor of this thing. One of the things that, uh, Jason, I really loved about this book, and I think and I think makes it 
so important is, um, and it's kind of like, um, you see, you know, Rachel Jankovic had a book called You Who um, that came out a couple years ago that was about, was basically kind of exposing, uh, her audience was really women in particular, but exposing them to these philosophical movements that have shaped our culture. And, and f- to, to women who probably, li- like the rest of us, have, have very little you know, a training or knowledge of these particular philosophical schools of thought, but are nonetheless deeply impacted by them. Things like existentialism and, 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 and nihilism and, and, and the like. And, and I feel like what you did in this book was a similar thing where I think you, um, you kind of laid bare, um, what's going on, you know, kind of in the culture that's, that's that in, and specifically in Christian culture, uh, you gave it a name, so you kind of created a taxonomy, which I think was super helpful. The 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 word you use is materialism, or um, uh, uh, esotericism is another er- word. Esotericism, that's right. Yeah, and and I thought that was also super helpful because it kind of gives handles to a concept that I think um, is so ubiquitous, but you can never really put your finger on it. I mean, I, f- I find myself having these conversations all the time and you sort of go into, you drift into these conversations about like we're doing here about cessationism and prophecy. And a lot of times it's like, well, that's not really what's going on here. It's not really a debate about cessationism or, or prophecy. It's, it's, it's this thing. It's this thing that Christians do this way that Christians think and talk and, and behave, uh, and uh, I think it's helpful to give it a name uh, so we can actually start to really wrap our, ha- our, our heads around it. Yeah. And, and Rich, you had mentioned, you know, the, the, like the Mark Driscoll example. And that is interesting. I had not heard that, that he was using that, that he was using that play on people. And, and that's what's so fascinating about it is that some people probably are using it as a power play. You know, God told me that ends discussion. Who's going to argue with God? But I think for the average Christian in the pew... I don't. I don't view it as an as a as an elaborate or artful deception. At least they're not intending to deceive others. I think maybe it's self deception. I think they've been kind of swallowed up by this culture and this these expectations, like you were mentioning, Larson. And they might not understand it all, but this is how everyone else talks, and this is how everyone else comes to decisions. And I guess if I pray a lot and then have these thoughts, and and, and you know, and it's not explicitly sinful, then obviously God told me. You know, and I, so, you know, I think there's kind of a spectrum of folks who, who, who think this way. Some, some are obviously manipulating others, but some themselves are the ones being manipulated. How would, right. how would someone go about distinguishing the voice of God from one's own voice or even from the voice of Satan? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's, well, I, I, chapter 5 largely deals with that. What I wanted to do, especially in chapter 5, was I really wanted to get inside their head you know what? What are they thinking uh, as it relates to those questions? Um, and, and and I did a couple dozen interviews with folks on this, and then read quite a few books also that had accounts of people who who think this way in regards to the spirituality. And what's interesting, Rich, is most of them. In fact, I don't recall any of them uh, worried about being deceived by Satan. So that's not even on their radar screen. They're worried though about how do I distinguish my voice. From God's voice. And part of the historical unity here, and this is what I do in section two of the book, six chapters, just kind of pointing to historical figures that thought this way and were influential, is one of the common threads from the early church into the modern evangelical church is the concept of silence, you know, kind of what the Anabaptist tradition calls yieldedness. And the idea there is you kind of 
psychologically get yourself into a state of prayer where you at least think that you have made yourself silent. And, you know, contemplative prayer is one of the go-to techniques, and it's largely borrowed from Eastern mysticism, but it's kind of just this, you know, repeating certain phrases over and over until there's a silence in your soul. And then once there's a silence in your soul, then whatever voice emerges is the voice of God, you know. And so th that's how they would talk about it, and, and, they, and they, you know, they have a lot of experiences where they kind of apply that into their daily life decisions and, th and things like that. So that's how they approach it. But the question you're asking is, is the proper one, is, and that is that, you know, we've got, we've got a soul, we've got a mind, we've got a heart. God and his, gives us His Spirit, but even when the Spirit indwells us, the Spirit is distinct from my soul. And the Spirit's going to do things. He's going to sanctify us. He's going to make us more mature. The Holy Spirit's going to make us holy. That's His primary purpose there. Uh, but even when He's prompting us or leading us or guiding us or changing us, uh, that's very different from His voice becoming the same thing as my voice, which is, in, in practice, what's usually happening in these situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I thought... Um... I, I think the comment about maturity is really apropos because I because I, I think there is this, you know, there's this um, and, and I also think your comment, Jason, about about self-deception is really is really spot on because because I, I don't I don't see very many people who I think are are consciously trying to manipulate people or consciously trying to um you know, um, use, use this as an argument to, to a, a trump card. I think it's, uh, but I think they're deceiving themselves. Um, and, and, uh, and it's, it is so ubiquitous. I, I actually found it kind of disorienting when I moved here. I'd been in, in Moscow, Idaho for 12 years and I'd grown up in the Baptist church in El Paso, Texas, which I, which I think is a pretty different culture from the South perhaps. Um, I, I'm sure I encountered some of this, but I didn't grow up in a family or a church community that was real big on this stuff, you know? And then we moved here and I felt like it was everywhere. It was everywhere as every conversation I had. I just really feel like God's leading me to do this. I really feel like the Lord, you know, just everything always had that that little disclaimer on it. And and half the time I thought, I don't even think they, they think that. It's It's almost like a filler... Christianese, it's a way to like make whatever statement you're about to make sound a little bit more Christian. And you just kind of tack that on at the beginning or the end. I think you had a term for that in your taxonomy. Yeah, the, yeah I created a taxonomy and because everyone's not the same, you know, so there, I, I made it into three groups. You could have made it into 20, but you know, the first group is spiritual populism. And that are, that's the people you're talking about. That's the people who use the language. But if you were to really kind of ask them what's going on there, they wouldn't say God's, that God revealed something new to them. It's just a way of talking because everyone else does it. And this is how I talk to be spiritual. And interestingly enough, Francis Schaeffer wrote a book in the seventies called, I think it was called super spirituality. And he was describing the Jesus people in California, the hippie, you know, the, the hippie Christians who, because because they were doing a lot of this stuff, you know, and he called it super spirituality, uh, you know, it, it, but a lot of it is just jargon. They're just using words. They don't really think God spoke to them. The second group, though, are the spiritual fire eaters, as I call them. They really do think God spoke to them. And I've been in quite a few conversations with these people, 
And, and Rich, you asked early on, how do you talk to these people? And in my, in my experience, it, it's not going to go well. Like if you try to challenge someone, hey, is this really you know, the way to go about making these decisions? They, they come back really strong. And I call these people the spiritual fire eaters. And what's unique about that category that in this taxonomy is that they really do want all Christians to have God speak to them like they have been spoken to, and they feel like if, if God's not speaking to you, then, then you're spiritually immature. And, and, and like was mentioned by you guys earlier, spiritual maturity in these circles is defined as this kind of subjective uh, revelation. The third group, just to round it out, is the, is the, is the spiritual heretics. And these are, these are the ones who are the most consistent, and it's their consistency that makes them heretics. So just think the Mormons. You know, If God really revealed this to me, I might as well write it down. What, maybe, maybe this will be instructive for others. Yeah, yeah there's quite a few in, in this. That's why, I think, that's why I think distinguishing what you think is God's voice from Satan's voice is not a, that's not a trivial question. Yeah. Uh, because I do think there are people who have... Uh, you know, been confused on that or, or deceived on that point. Uh, let me ask you this. The, the, the people who I guess you described as spiritual fire eaters, the ones that want, uh, you know, want God to speak to every Christian, what would be the difference between, uh, you know, say God told me X as a way of decision-making versus say casting lots? I mean, w- would they be open to casting lots as a way of getting the will of God? Probably not. But, but the point is, is well made. You see casting lots in Scripture when it comes to big decisions. What's bigger than choosing the, the 12th apostle? <laughs> you know, so, but, so that's a great point. But, and, but you're also highlighting another point, and that is that if they're even trying to have a, have a hermeneutic here, that this is a biblical practice, it's not consistently applied. For example, uh, in Numbers, a donkey talks. Well, right there, the Bible tells us that God speaks through livestock. Let's go. You know, uh, there, there's several examples in, in Scripture where, where if you follow that same kind of, of hermeneutical logic, uh, they obviously don't go to that extent. And, and I think that's kind of part of the point you're making with your, with your question there. Well, the I think one, one way to counter a lot of this, and, and again, I, I've not gotten to read your book, Jason, I will soon, but um, is to help Christians grow in wisdom and particularly grow in I, you might just say biblical principles or biblical guidelines for yeah. decision making, yeah. because I think that's a lot of times what people are looking for is certainty and assurance that they're making the right decision, particularly in those areas where obviously the you know what we're really talking about is areas where the Bible doesn't speak directly. Like I don't need, you know, I, God tells us certain things that are black and white. I don't have to know what I don't need to guess when that is the will of God for me to steal from the convenience store. Right. Um, but I, 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 I do need guidance when it comes to picking a major in college or uh, which girl I should marry or yeah. uh, which apartment I should rent or which car I should buy. You know, th- those are areas where we really do need, um, you could say, wisdom. That, yeah. That's not, you know, God's not going to, the Bible doesn't address any one of those things directly in my own particular circumstances. And so I've got to make a decision here. And so I think that's sometimes where people are looking for some kind of extra biblical guidance. And it seems mm-hmm. to me one way that we could counter this kind of pseudo-spirituality yeah. is helping people understand better principles, biblical principles, for making those kinds of decisions when they arise. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then you, know, you, can, you can make a decision and say, well, uh, I weighed various factors 
uh, as I, you know, as I thought scripture would have me prioritize them. And this is the decision I came to. And I realized it's my decision and I'm responsible. You know, if I, if, if I chose to buy this car, <laughs> I can't blame God if it breaks down on the way home because right. he didn't tell me to buy it. Well, uh, but it looked to me like it was a good decision. Right. And, uh, and, and it seems to me that might be a much better place to help people end up in terms I think you're exactly right. And one of the one of the other characteristics of the spiritual fire eaters is they're they're paralyzed in decision making until they have this experience, uh, and that becomes a pretty significant pastoral problem when you're when you're looking at the sorts of decisions they're just waiting for God to reveal to them on when they need to be taking action. And more broadly, I think you're exactly right, Rich. That um, one of the things that's happened in evangelicalism is we are not a wise people. We're the sort of people who are deceived. We believe lies. Uh, you know, we don't. We haven't trained ourselves in godliness. We haven't trained ourselves in wisdom. And I think this is the reason why. It's because, uh, it's because. Well, when I need to to know something, or to think something, or to make a decision about something that's not explicitly addressed in Scripture, then I've got this subjective spirituality. You know, this is how I'll make this decision. But when, in, in truth, God has has instructed us, I think, to to grow in wisdom to grow in discernment, to grow in knowledge, so that we can make decisions, and often we can make very quick decisions, almost instinctual decisions if you're growing in, in wisdom. And, and I would even suggest that when you go back to 2019, 2020, the, the, the amount of Christians that were deceived by you know, all the COVID stuff, shutting down church, just completely disobeying Scripture and stopping to worship on Sundays for, for months at a time, you know, they were believing lies. Well, why? It's because they had not trained their wisdom muscles. They, they had not built them up. And, and, and part of that, too, is you know, this so-called gospel-centered movement gets on its gospel-centered high horse and says, anytime you're trying to grow in these disciplines, that, well, that's legalism. You know, and, and so we are, we are a spiritually effete people, and, and we've been deceived in mass here in the last few years. And in the book of Jeremiah, it's not a virtue to believe lies. Uh, you're held accountable for that. You mentioned responsibility. Yeah, you're held responsible when you believe lies. And basically, we have not trained ourselves in godliness in the way we're supposed to. Our spirituality is subjective rather than objective. So we're looking for the inner rather than the external. And so we can't discern right from wrong. Yeah, there's a real lack of discernment. Here, here's another way that I thought about this. Um, I'm always really suspicious of Christians who change their minds on certain things, and they might say that oh, I found this new insight in the Bible or something like that that led me in this direction. But when they change their mind in ways that totally go with the flow of the culture. Yeah. So, for example, Rick Warren discovers that God doesn't care about women pastors right at the moment that we're hitting peak feminism in the culture. Right. You know, right. How convenient is that, 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 that he discovers this insight from Scripture that pastors don't have to be men right at the moment when that's one of the most controversial things you can believe in you know, in the church. Um, there's lots of other examples I could give. I mean, homosexuality, same kind of thing. Isn't it interesting that a lot of these people found new insights into the Bible just as, you know, it's becoming, you know, it gets you accused of being a, you know, bigot or homophobic or whatever. If you don't believe that uh, homosexuality is a valid lifestyle, they find a way to reread the Bible. It's like, to me, that's way too convenient. And it's obviously a, a false reading of the Bible anyway. But um, I've noticed the same kind of thing here. It, it's almost like it's too convenient, this, this highly subjectivized theology of God told me, uh, very much based on feelings and emotions, arises right in tandem with 
say, the rise of postmodernism and the culture skewing in a radically subjectivist direction, in yeah. a radically therapeutic direction, where feelings and experience become the authority in the individual's life. It, yeah. It's almost like you have, you know, the world is, is headed in this direction, and then the church jumps on board, but we're going to spiritualize it and call the same thing the world is doing, God speaking to me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so you've got this radical subject, subjectivity going on in the culture, feelings-based, uh, you know, feelings-based epistemology, uh, experience becomes the final authority, lived experience you know, is everything now, and hey, we, we can do that too, and what's better, we can, we can slap a spiritual label onto it. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that's some of what's happening? I do, here? and I think that goes back hundreds of years. I think that's the history of American evangelicalism has several things that work in it, much to what you're saying here, that kind of prepare us for this assumption. Uniquely American things, just going back to even to the colonial period before the, the nation was formed, you know, the rise of individualism, what, what would eventually become expressive individualism just which basically becomes just autonomy you know it's it's, it's self-sovereignty it's in a, more specifically it's sovereignty on what's interior but then whatever's outside of me i'm suspicious of you know so we can thank emmanuel kant and rousseau and, and even descartes before them for for kind of you know making the, the the sovereign self but but you know america latches onto that early on but but other things in in the american church especially is there's this distinction between so-called head knowledge and heart knowledge. And I deal with this in chapter four, and I was fascinated by this when I, when I started hearing this emphasized so much growing up. Um, and, and it really separates the head from the heart. And, and I think in so doing, what it does is it, is it pits the intellect and, and growing in wisdom and discernment against vibrant spirituality that's soul deep. You know, when in reality, scripture doesn't divide it like that. You know, so, uh, other things, though, uh, American Christians have this yearning for the extraordinary. So we're not satisfied with being formed by corporate worship on Sunday. You know, we want something big. We want, we want you know, the next big thing, and, and especially when it comes to our own life, because you know, we think our own lives are really important. And so you know, God's got to have this big revelation for me. To, to point me to the next thing. And so we, we assume God works in the extraordinary, but not in the regular, ordinary parts of life. And then the other thing that, that, I've, that I noticed is in my research is just this, uh, it's this assumption of spontaneity. We think the Holy Spirit works sponta spontaneously. You know, and, and this, is, this is a common assumption going back for, you know, in American history, and it's tied to the experience component that, that you mentioned. And, and I've heard so many people, when I, when I was uh, trying to do some primary research on this, they just assume that if, if it's spontaneous, it's the Spirit, but if it's carefully planned, it's not the Spirit. And, and what's fascinating about that is how unspontaneous that really is. I mean, think how limiting to God that is. We're going to say that God can only work in a spontaneous thing. Instead of in a planned thing, they think they're opening up the Spirit when in fact they're constricting Him. But these are some of the preconditions, I think, that, that prepare American evangelicals to assume that experience trumps Scripture. And you see, for example, I mentioned my, my own background in Southern Baptist. The most uh, influential Southern Baptist in history is E.Y. Mullins. And about 100 years ago, when he was operating, he was writing books and everything, and he was basically taking Rochambeau's theology and recycling it for his Baptist audience. And of course, Rochambeau was, was all about experience. And what Mullins was doing was he was taking experience and elevating it above Scripture. 
And, and, the, and the problem with that is not that experience is bad. Experience is great. I want Christians to have a lot of righteous experiences. But the problem is that if experience trumps Scripture, and it, what's the criteria for when that experience is of God and when it's not? You always have to have Scripture there to, to validate that experience. And if it's not, then, then the only way to, 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 you know, to, to counter your experience is with another experience. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. Really I was, as you were, as you were saying that, um, uh, Jason, I was thinking, I was thinking to myself, what if the still small voice that the Lord uses is your pastors <laughs> You know, on Sunday morning, you know, the, the, the sermon, this small little sermon happening in Huntsville, Alabama is that, that, that is this small little microphone, you know, to just a small group of people that, that is going actually completely counter to what the culture is saying. But in that sermon, you hear God, you hear God speaking something that convicts you to your core. Like what if, what if that's the still small, like that's the way that that's the voice that the Lord is using. And it's not necessarily something that happens in your prayer closet. But, but Larson, the church smacks of institutionality and rigid rules and and the spirit doesn't work that way. Right. I think your point about uh, spontaneity is exactly right. And that is one of the biggest uh, issues I think we have to overcome, especially if we are in, uh, you know, if you, you might call churches like mine or like yours liturgical churches. I know you could say that every church is liturgical, which is sort of the point here. But, uh, you know, churches that have a structured and scripted liturgy. Um, and I remember somebody, you know, saying, you know, why, 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 why have a bulletin? Why not just show up and do what the Spirit leads? And I was like, well, why can't the Spirit lead us on a Tuesday when I'm putting the bulletin together? I mean, why does it have right. to be on a Sunday morning? You know, uh, again, you know, that, that point that you're sort of putting God in a box uh, by saying he must work spontaneously is exactly right. And honestly, I think it's a recipe for disaster. Um, I actually think that, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of like, why do coaches go into a game with a game plan? Why not just wing it on a, you know, on a Saturday? Well, every good coach is going to give a lot of thought to his strategy and what plays he wants to call and that kind of thing because the game's important. Well, if something matters, you put time into it. My guess is a lot of these people who might want spontaneity in worship um, still want things scripted when it comes to, say, a wedding you know, or something like that. I, maybe because those events are more important in their mind or something. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, I mean, spontaneity, um, because of this commitment to spontaneity, people are opposed to ritual. But the reality is, you know, they still saying ritual is the mother of all learning. Um, the only way to actually learn something is through ritual, through repetition. I guess the saying is probably repetition is the mother of all learning, but it's really the same, same thing. Like if you want to become a good free throw shooter, you've got to go shoot a thousand free throws every single day the exact same way. Okay, that's, that's just how you get good at it. If you want to master the scripture, you've got to study it diligently and commit portions of it to memory. And you've got to be uh, systematic and, and structured in the way that you read the Bible so you can make sure you're taking into account the whole of scripture and not just certain maybe favored portions of it. So, uh, yeah, it, that, I, think, I think that commitment to spontaneity is the real enemy of maturity. It's the real enemy of maturation and wisdom. Uh, in the church today, and it's, and again, it's certainly there's certainly not anything, uh, you know, especially spiritual about being spontaneous. There's, mm-hmm. Especially for fallen creatures, we ought to be very suspicious about uh, what spontane- you know, what, what comes out of us spontaneously. I mean, if I respond to a high pressure situation spontaneously with words 
versus giving thought to what I might say, I'm probably far less likely to get myself into trouble saying something I regret if I'm not spontaneous and if I'm careful and disciplined, you know, and thoughtful in what I say. Well, Jason, uh, so spontaneity, I think, is a recipe for disaster. Yeah, and Jason made the point earlier that we're trying to train our reflex. You know, the 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 example I think of is like. Um, you know, when somebody throws a baseball at your head, you know, if you grew up playing catch, your you your reaction is to reach for it, right? Your reaction isn't isn't to just stand there and get smashed in the nose with it. Like you you react by moving your head or moving the and and Marines, you know, are trained uh, that when they hear gunfire, they don't start running away, which is your natural response. They're trained to run towards the gunfire. And in the same way, uh, Christians need to be trained through Scripture and through studying Scripture and growing in wisdom and discernment um, to respond, even in the moment, uh, the correct way. So there, were, like you, you gave the example, Jason, of COVID, there were many of us whose just instinct was, this isn't right, we shouldn't be doing this, right? There were a lot of us who, who hadn't spent time studying and trying to come up with the arguments, who just felt like... This isn't right. I know this isn't right. Um, but there, because, like you said, American evangelicals have, have, I think, given themselves this false sense of spiritual maturity by telling themselves, by vir- it's really a kind of virtue signaling, this false piety of, well, God is just telling me this, and God, I just feel that God's leading me this way, and you just say all that stuff enough, and everyone around you goes, wow, that person's just so godly and so mature, and then you're shocked to find out their marriage is in shambles, or they've caved on some huge issue that's like, whoa, how did you do that? And I think the whole thing leads to, I mean, the danger, I mean, the the, the big danger that Rich mentioned is, you know, you become... Allah, or excuse me, become Muhammad, who, who thinks he heard from God when he's really hearing from a demon. Um, but but in 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 your everyday Christians' experience, I think it's it's this doubt starts to creep into your to your your faith, where you start going, "Well, I thought God told me to do that, and then it didn't work out, and I must have been wrong. And now, am I? Do I really know God, or does God really love me, or or you know?" And just I think it becomes a spiral or when you see somebody else do something unwise. Um, I mean, the worst is a pastor. I mean, I, I, Jason can remember a conversation we had with a, with a pastor who, who had made some huge decisions about their church based on this, basically this just feeling that he, this kind of word he got from the Lord um, divorced from any real wisdom. You know, there wasn't a, okay, I've got this feeling that I should maybe do this. Let me now go check with wise counselors and consult the scriptures and 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 ask and really interrogate what what wisdom looks like. Um, so anyway, I, I just think all of it is setting us up to to be a people who believe that we're very spiritual, believe that we're very godly, but are just prime for manipulation, confusion, and and ultimately uh, losing our faith. Yeah, for example, what if two people are claiming to hear a message from God and they conflict with one another? Sure. I, I, I you know, uh, a young man tells a young lady, God's telling me we should date. Right. And she says, God's telling me we shouldn't. Right. How would you ever adjudicate that? Right. Yeah. Well, the other thing I would say, too, on that, that I, I at some point in college, I don't know what I was reading or what it was that got me. But but at some point, my reading of the third commandment about taking the Lord's name in vain went from 
from thinking like you can't use God's name in a swear word to, to this much, I think, more profound understanding of that commandment, which is don't put God's stamp on things that he hasn't put his stamp on. Like, don't take his name and use it however you want. Like, like revere his name, reverence his name in such a way that you would never assign something to God. Uh, and, and, and I think it includes being flippant about how we talk about God um, and, uh, and, and making jokes and things. But, but I, think, I think especially when you start to put God's stamp of approval on something that he didn't put his own stamp on, um, I think to me that that is, I think, a, a really clear violation of the third commandment. Yeah, and that is, that's an issue that's addressed all throughout Scripture. Uh, Jeremiah 23, verses 33 through 40, it's pretty explicit. It's the problem of wrongful attribution. And, uh, you know, Ezekiel 13, 6 says, They have seen false visions and lying divinations. They say, declares the Lord, when the Lord has not sent them, and yet they expect Him to fulfill their word. And, of course, it goes on to explain the, the, the resulting condemnation from this. And, and so it, it should be alarming to us how casually we say God said when you see what happens to people in the Old Testament when they say God said inappropriately or wrongly. You know, this always invites the judgment of God. And what's interesting here is you're making a claim about the character of God. What comes out of the heart or what comes out of the mouth reveals the heart. You know, that's true of God, too. And so whatever his word says reveals his character. So if I'm running around town saying God told me to do this, that, and the other, well, then I'm making a claim about God's authority just as much as I, or his character, just as much as I'm making a claim about, you know, whatever particular decision I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know, dealing with. Yeah. Let God be true and every man a liar, right? I mean, if you are, if you are a Christian, that should be something that is close, you know, that, that, that is close to your lips. If you really, you know, have reverence for God, um, you, you would you would live in such a way that that um, you don't put you don't uh, ascribe to God uh, uh, a kind of um, authority that he hasn't he hasn't uh, given uh, or, or or ascribe to him causation of things that he hasn't clearly indicated he causes. So I think I I, I definitely think it's a that's the way we should we should be thinking is let, let God be true and every man a liar. Yeah, I, I think you're right about that to, to frame this as a third commandment issue. That's one of the perspectives on the problem, one of the ways to look at it. And, and, and that brings me back to another larger trend that we're seeing. I don't think you would have in an age where people feared and revered God and where that was evident in their lives and maybe especially in the way that they worship and that kind of thing. Uh, I don't think you would have this kind of problem where people go throwing God's name around, God told me this, God told me that, um, because they would understand, they would know intuitively, that's not reverencing God's name, that's not honoring God's name, that's not fearing God, that's that's a misuse of God's name. It's using yeah. God's name lightly, which is the essence of what the third commandment is about. So absolutely. So another, you know, I talked earlier about some ways of trying to deal with this problem as far as like teaching better principles of decision making or uh, helping people understand the importance of ritual and repetition as opposed to spontaneity. But another way to approach this would be uh, to, to think about it in terms of learning to fear and revere God so you don't throw mm-hmm. his name around so lightly. Yeah. Uh, that, that is another, that's another perspective on the whole problem. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and you mentioned earlier, b- both of you had mentioned at different points that, uh, you know, what, what, if God's, what if God spoke during the sermon? 
you know, uh, you know that kind of idea. And, and Rich was mentioning just the, the ritualistic nature of, of this, the repetitious nature. And I think what's happened is 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 people are still as ritualistic as as they were in the medieval period. They've just relocated their ritualism to the prayer closet, and it's a ritual. It is you know get my workbook, get my coffee, get my uh, smartphone so I can take a picture of it. And this is how God speaks, when in truth, uh, God reveals himself and thereby forms us primarily through Lord's Day worship, uh, where where there is the preaching of the word and the singing and the praying and everything else. Uh, So we've just relocated it, and and, notice how we've relocated it. We've we've, We've basically moved away from any sort of external authority coming to bear on my relationship with God. It's just me and God. And, you know, maybe I'll go to the church or maybe some, a book uh, that's written by a Christian author just to get a few ideas. But then I take it all back to my private spirituality. You know, and this, this does so many things, uh, you know, because it corrupts uh, fellowship. It corrupts community. Uh, you know, decision making is a big deal. And that can actually build the church community. What if, what if we've got people making decisions, maybe they're young people or older people, and they go and seek out wisdom from their pastor and from other godly people in the church who have experienced similar things, and then they talk through it and pray through it? Well, not only are you putting someone on the path to a right decision, but you're building the fellowship of the saints. And so you're really destroying uh, some of the more meaningful moments of fellowship and community in the church when you uh, make, make your ritual the prayer closet rather than Sunday worship. Yeah, that's a great point, too. And it just fits with, the you know, you mentioned individualism, uh, kind of the hyper-individualism that has uh, come to characterize American culture, and along with it, exp- you know, the expressive form of individualism, which is just pure autonomy. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I think you're really on. One of the things, oh, go ahead, Larson. Oh, I was just going to say in passing uh, that, that to me it seems like uh, Christianese and this God told me so kind of stuff is sort of the modern day phylactery. You know, it's it's this it's this way to kind of publicly flaunt your spirituality um, in, in a way that that um, that gets you that scores you points, in, especially in the South. Um, but I, I've 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 come to, I've personally come to despise it and, and try to root it out in every aspect of my life. You know, I, I want to have meaningful spiritual conversations with people, um, and, and thoughtful conversations, intentional conversations. And and I don't want to just go around, uh, peppering everything I say with, with little, little snippets of Christianese and spirituality that, that are, that are not thoughtful and meaningful and, and, intentional, you know, um, that reflect actual biblical wisdom. Right. Um, and I think that's, that's the other thing is there are all these Christian phrases, even, you know, verses where we take a little snippet of a verse, like such a time as this or whatever the thousand, there's so many of these little phrases in Christianity. You just kind of snip them, you know, slide them in. Uh, I can do all things through Christ or whatever. And it's just like, um, are you talking about the Bible verse? Like, do you want to talk about the Bible? Like, does that Bible verse apply to this? Or are you just, is that just a way to make whatever point you're making sound more spiritual? And again, I think it comes back to a third command. I think that's really important. The language we use matters a lot. And, and some people might look at this and just think, well, you're splitting hairs. Some, okay, so some people use this language. They don't really mean it. It's just a way we talk, you know. And, but I would argue that the language matters significantly. 
in, in Charles Taylor's book, uh, The Language Animal, he, he argues that, and in that book, his, his, his opponent is the Darwinists, but he argues that language is constitutive of thought, that language creates the, the categories of knowing. And so, uh, yeah, we, we might use this language and think it's harmless in the moment, but over time, this is going to actually carve out how we know or don't know something, or at least what we think we know about it, and it's going to create the thought that, that you know, even if we don't intend it. Yes. Yeah. So true. You know, so, so like here, here's an, here's an example. Um, I think about the word of faith teachers, you know, like the charismatic word of faith teachers that basically, you know, you can call something into existence kind of thing. How is that any different than say transgenderism? Okay. With, you know, with the exception being that the word of faith people will put a, again, a veneer of spirituality over it. Uh, the transgender person says, I am my own God, so I can recreate myself as a different gender if I so choose, if that's what I feel like doing. You know, I am my own God. It seems to me the Word of Faith people are doing the exact same thing. Um, I have power, uh, you know, to, and I, I mean, obviously they'd have some kind of theological apparatus that would say that God is involved in this. But it's the same, it, to me, it seems very similar in the sense that it's like this commitment to autonomy that I have power to create something myself. Uh, and again, I think that's, that's very dangerous. Yeah, it's good. There was a, there was a comment that was made earlier about maturity that kind of got my mind going in a different direction. Maybe we can return to it real quick. Is this idea that, um, you know, uh, Rich and I have talked a lot about this kind of biblical progression from the garden forward of, of moving, you know, that, that had, had Adam and Eve not reached for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, um, sinfully that 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 God's design was 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 likely to to give that to them uh, you know in his time in his way um, that that his his people were designed to to grow in wisdom and in knowledge um, um, but but that 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 is that is in, in the you know new the new Adam has come and we have the Holy Spirit and 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 we are uh, going to judge angels someday so this this progression towards m- Maturity is a theme that I think we 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 should be looking for and anticipating and and uh, living according to. But I wonder. I mean, this is this is uh, one of the things that I see all of this coming out of Jason in your book. It's clear that that the seeds of materialism, you know, you see it in all different strains from the Desert Fathers to you know all, all sort of pre-Reformation stuff. But it seems like it really explodes after the Enlightenment and, and after the Reformation. And and especially in America, it seems like this stuff just really gets going with individualism in America. And and I there's a part of me that wondered if like the institutional church, the Roman Catholic Church, um, was sort of a almost a training wheel, you know, almost training wheels for for early Christendom, you know, sort of a way to kind of keep the thing on the rails, um, where you had official dogma and you had official um, doctrine that 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 okay, the Reformation happens, and now it's kind of akin to the conversation Rich and I have had about the difference between uh, country life versus city life. There's, there, there's a longing for the old days when everything was simpler and easier in the, in the country when I was living on the farm, but that was like, you you were like a, it was for just survival. Um, but then you get to Solomon and the Proverbs and you've got prosperity and cosmopolitan setting, and you've got new temptations of drunkenness and, and, and different kind of sexual perversion. And that's where we are today is we're, we're in a world that requires a lot more maturity and wisdom to operate in than, 
than if you were living on a farm, um, with no, with no people, you know, around. Um, and so I, I kind of wonder if something similar is not happening historically where we, so where the reformation was a good thing historically, but it also like, like moving into a cosmopolitan setting, it, it, there's a lot of new temptations, this every man becoming their own authority business that we, that we're experiencing. And this, this stuff that we're experiencing wisdom is going to be take not going back to Rome where everything's settled and you've got this big church structure that, 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 uh, that we think is, is corrupt and is, is, is wrong. Um, it's going to be moving forward with wisdom, you know? Uh, uh, and so anyway, I, I don't know if any of that strikes you guys as maybe something that's, that's going on here with this, uh, with this progression, but, but I, at least I saw that as, as kind of an interesting uh, aspect of it. Yeah, there's a trajectory here, and there's no doubt the Reformation turned the Bible into a contested book, as necessary as it was. You know, Pelican said it was a tragic necessity, but it turned the Bible into a contested book, and so all these groups rose up, had their stake their claim on what the Bible means, and it was pretty convenient to say, oh, and by the way, God told me that this is, this is actually what it means. And that is pretty interesting that when you look at some of the beliefs, especially in the Baptistic world, uh, when, when the Zwickau prophets came to Melanchthon, I believe Luther was at, uh, in Marburg Castle at the time, uh, they, they, were, they were telling Melanchthon, you know, God spoke to me and all about all these things. And Melanchthon didn't know what to make of it. You know, he wasn't very sure of himself. He was kind of like Timothy. And without Luther by his side, he wasn't a very courageous guy. And I, but, but Melanchthon basically said, once they said, God told me infant baptism's not true, Melanchthon knew they were wrong. You know, and so that's kind of where in, in the in the radical Reformation, that's where the that's where the rejection of infant baptism came. Not from uh, not from careful study; it was from a private revelation. But then also, you look at uh, you look at Zwingli's view of the Lord's Supper, which is also more or less how the Baptists view it. You know, the memorial view of the supper. Zwingli came by that uh, through a private dream, and uh, and he was mocked by Luther and some of the others when that came to light. You know, not through Bible study, through a private dream. And then keep going, look at the Free Will Baptist, the, the, the founder, his last name was, was Randall. Uh, his, his, his rejection of definite atonement, uh, how did he come to that doctrinal position? God told me that this isn't right. You know, the Calvinistic view isn't right. You know, and so, yeah, the Bible's a contested book, and when I can't prove my, my pref- preferred view exegetically, I can just play this card God told me. Yeah, it's yeah. kind of lazy. It's, again, it's a, it's a yeah. substitute for maturity. It's a substitute yeah. for reasoned argument. It's a substitute for making a, a, a clear, thought-out, logical case for something. I'm just going to say God told me, and that'll settle it. You know what Luther said about those Anabaptistic charismatics? Luther said they swallowed the Holy Spirit feathers and all. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> They're so carried that. away with their own spirituality. That's uh, great. It's one of those great Luther yeah. lines. You could say that about quite a few yeah, that's great. Today. You know, one of the things that on this is uh, that, that I want church leaders especially to, to think about is that one of the reasons so many Christians are pushed to the private interpretation, you know, private prayer closet, spirituality is because the church is just really weak in America right now. You know, in some sense, People try to go to the church, try to get wisdom and discernment, try to get you know learning, and they don't get anything. It's a big bag of nothing. And so they feel like they have to pursue Christ on their own. They don't want to become atheists. They're not unbelievers. They still believe. It's just the church has given them nothing. And so it's like, so, so in some of this, if we can understand why people are drawn to this, the church 
can maybe actually preemptively keep people from moving to this sort of view in the first place. And one of the, as I did some of my research, a couple of characteristics of people who are drawn to this. Uh, one is that they, they usually think that the church is just this cold, dead, lifeless place. And quite frankly, that's been the case in a lot of churches, you know, where it is cold, dead, and lifeless. And there's not a lot of life there. There's not a lot of joy there. You know, so they're driven out. Uh, they're, they're looking for something a little more vibrant. And, and I don't think that's necessarily a wrong instinct that they have. Uh, another thing is they want an experience. Uh, and maybe they haven't been trained on what kind of experiences that they should want. But they want an experience that's more real than real. You know, something that's from inside out rather than outside in. And, and, um, and so, you know, when you, when you look at the, the, the contemporary worship music, you know, this is what this is about. It's trying to help people feel something because they don't want to be dead and lifeless. Um, and also, um, there's, a, there's a distrust of external authority. Uh, from from a lot of these people and maybe this starts with the baby boomers and they've passed it along But just going back to the last hundred years. There's a lot of distrust of the church. There's a lot of distrust as institutional authority I was at a church service in Georgia a week or two ago And there was a visitor there and he explained to me. No, I don't usually come to church This is my first time in a long time. I don't trust the institutional church and my guess is both of you have heard that story quite a few times and, and, you know, um, I forget who it was. It'll come to me in a minute. It'll come to me as soon as we turn off the podcast. Yeah. Um, but the comment was made, a low churchman is a man with a high view of himself and a low view of the church, and a high mm. churchman is a man with a low view of himself and a high view of the church. Yeah, that's good. That man who says he doesn't trust in institutions because, say, they're, they're the institutional church because of its track record, okay, fine. But what that does mean is he's got a lot of trust in himself. Yeah. Okay, and uh, I'm sure his track record is pretty spotty too. You know, so uh, he's holding the church to a much higher standard than himself, and he's putting a lot of trust in himself, and and you know, and not in the church. And I do agree, the church obviously has failed in many ways. The church yeah. is often very weak and not what she should be. Many pastors have failed, uh, but the answer is not turning within or turning yeah. to a kind of you know expressive individualism or something like that. The yeah. the, the the challenge of our day, I think, is to recover Mother Church, and what it means for the church to be, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, the kingdom, household, and family of God. You know, that's what we've got to recover, and pastors have got to pastor accordingly, and elders have to, you know, they have to rule accordingly, and uh, the church has to be uh, structured and organized in her worship and polity and community life accordingly, all done according to the Bible. I think what happens with the God told me thing is basically, and this this was the Roman Catholic charge against the Reformation. Um, basically, every man becomes his own pope. Mm-hmm. If I'm getting my own private revelation, and that's and that's got the power to trump anything else, uh, basically, I have become my own pope, uh, and I and I'm even putting the voice of God in my own head uh, above the Bible. And there's there's yeah. obviously just a huge huge danger in that, and I think it leaves us very very vulnerable to a lot of really terrible things. And again, I think we've seen a lot of that. Uh, come to pass. I've seen people do really terrible things in the name of God. Yeah. Uh, I've seen people do really terrible things under the name. In fact, I'll give you one example of several I could pick from. But uh, the, the I was on staff at a church uh, in Texas in the mid-90s, and we there's a man that he was not a member, but they were kind of in the process of joining. They never actually joined, and it became clear why. But they've been attending for a while. They were well-respected, prominent Christian family, you know, 
coming from one church to another, you know, educating their kids Christianly, all of that. We were going to make the change in our communion practice to go to from, from monthly communion to weekly communion and from grape juice to wine. And so he asked for a meeting with the session. And when he met with the session, you know, he, 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 uh, he, he basically argued against the use of wine in the Lord's Supper. And he had already seen and been presented with arguments from the Bible, but he was presented with arguments from the Bible again in that meeting. And the Bible did not carry any weight with him on this particular point. Uh, his experience overrode the Bible. Yeah, and so he, you know, and he was angry with the session. We were making this change, going to wine. He thought that was just the wrong thing for us to do. Mm. Well, we did it anyway. About six months later, he left his wife for another woman, and when confronted with it, he said, "Get this, God told me I could do this." Mm. Okay, that's good. Yeah. Well, he wouldn't listen to arguments from the Bible about wine and communion. Yeah. But, you know, so what does that mean? Well, clearly he put himself in the place of authority. You know, he became his own Bible. He became his own Pope, uh, his own authority. And so really no external authority could tell him what to do. He would not submit to any external authority. You know, his opinion was treated as divine. I give you lots of other examples. That's one that really stands out to me because it happened so early in my experience in pastoral ministry. Um, but uh, yeah, there, 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 this is a really practical and pressing issue. It is. And one that's, I think, hugely significant. I go back to, you know, I, I, I really look forward to reading your book, Jason, because it, it just it all sounds really interesting. And it sounds like you've really done a lot of great research and created a lot of helpful categories for um, you know, to aid us in understanding what's happening. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a pastor. You guys are elders. You know, we're seeking to shepherd people all the time. Uh, and, and so, and we do encounter things like this and it's really good for us to understand why people are doing and saying what they're doing and saying. And, and yep. it sounds like you've written a book that gives us a lot of insight into that, Jason. I, you know, I'm thinking about this issue myself, uh, and this is kind of, again, there's a lot of other things to say besides this. Um, I, I, I think that the cessation issue is significant and, Sure. I, I'm, I'm thinking on things I've written or uh, preached on. Um, I preach through 1 Corinthians, and actually, if, if people are interested in this, they can go look it up. When I, when I preach through 1 Corinthians, a number of those sermons, particularly on 1 Corinthians chapters 12, 13, and 14, deal with the issue of the cessation of the revelatory gifts. Right. And again, I'm a cessationist who believes strange things can still happen. I'm, right. I'm, not, I'm not saying that uh, some of those stories that you hear from the mission field are fabricated. I'm, I'm very open to that. But as a matter of course, for the people of God in the history of the church, my position is the same as, say, Athanasius or Augustine. It's not hard to find, you know, as well as obviously, you know, the bulk of the reformers, um, to, to, to argue that special revelation has ceased and God is no longer speaking in that way it is... I think, the orthodox position. Um, charismatics are obviously all over the map in terms of what they mean when they talk about the ongoing gifts. Some of that's more, you know, some holding to a more problematic view than others. And kind of your broad evangelical, who may not be that charismatic, but who uses language of God told me, he may mean something different. He may not have in mind something that's on par with Scripture. That, that may not be what he has in view. Fine. I still think it's really important for us to have a framework of understanding special revelation, 
Jason, you made a really good point that even if you go back to, say, the Old Testament times when the, the, when the canon was open, or even if you go to New Testament times in the apostolic era where, you know, why, was, why, was, why, why did people have the gift of prophecy, say, in the Church of Corinth? Well, I think part of it is because they did not have a completed New Testament. So it's sort of filling in what's lacking because right. they don't have the entirety of the New Testament. Once they do, uh, the, the need for those gifts falls away, I think. Yeah. But... Um, you know, even aside from that, the vast, vast, vast majority of God's people never had the gift of prophecy and could never say, you know, utter something and then say, thus saith the Lord, you know, with, with some kind of absolute authority. It's only a tiny handful of believers who have lived throughout the whole course of history who have been given that kind of prophetic gift. So again, to act like this should be normative or something all of God's people should seek Huge, huge mistake, huge distraction from what God wants us to really pursue. Yeah, that's exactly, exactly right. And, and the distraction, I think, what is it distracting us from? Well, I think this is also part of the explanation for why so many evangelical Christians don't live holy lives. You know, we've lost the, the moral vision of the gospel, that it transforms us, that it not only forgives us and not only declares us right with God, but it transforms us. We're new creatures. The Holy Spirit is given to us to, among other things, make us holy. And we're given very specific gospel-based moral instruction to do that in the power of the Spirit. But when our focus on the Spirit is this other thing, then we're actually not pursuing, we're not intentionally pursuing what we ought to be. And I think that's a big explanation for why Christians aren't holy. We don't live morally inspiring lives for the world. The light-dark contrast isn't as stark as it needs to be. Yeah. That's yeah, good. that's a great point. It's good. Well, gentlemen, I, I know this is a topic that the three of us could probably talk a lot more about, and and I would like to propose that we do. I, I think uh, Rich has got some reading to do. I, I'm almost done, so I need to finish the book, but I would propose that the three of us get back together. Let's do it. And do a round two, because I, I think this is such an important topic, and and um, and I, I think, Rich, you're right. I, I mean, this is more. This is more than a theological debate about cessationism. I think this is a practical pastoral issue, and I think what you were saying about how your speech, you know, uh, is formative of your thought that it's it's that we're being catechized uh, by using this thoughtless Christianese. Um, you know, I, again, I, w- I would categorize most most people in that category. You know, of people who who are at least uh, modern evangelicals are in that category of people who are just just going with the flow of things but but by talking this way but I think the damage is being done uh, to the way that they're thinking and the way they they're they're believing um, and I'll, I'll close with that the, a thought that um, that came to me when you were talking about casting lots rich which I which I think is what this comes I think what a lot of this comes back to is the question of of do you have faith in God are you willing to operate um, with the definition of faith we're given in Hebrews, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Um, are you willing as a Christian to live by faith? Or do you need to have some special direct revelation? And I, I know I've had the uh, the experience of counseling people, and I'm sure you guys have too, through difficult decisions. Um, Mother Teresa, I've heard this story, which may be apocryphal. Some businessman said, hey, I'm, I need your prayer. I need, I need prayer for wisdom and and uh, clarity. You know, how many times do you get that prayer request? I need pr- I need prayer for wisdom and clarity about this big decision. And Mother Teresa's response was, 
Uh, I don't think you need either of those things. I think you need faith. Um, Mm. And and I've counseled people in those kinds of situations, and I've counseled people to flip a coin. You know, I've, I've said, look, this is a biblical idea. You've done all of the work you can do. You and I sitting here could talk about it for hours, but I think we're at a point where I think it's a coin toss. And I think you should go home and pray with your wife and then flip a coin and accept the accept the answer, you know, from 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 the Lord and and move forward, you know, um, and and trusting that God gives His children good gifts. He loves His children. He's you don't ask Him for, you know, a a, a, a piece of bread and He gives you a, a scorpion. Uh, you know, He He wants to give us good gifts. So so trust Him and uh, and have actual faith. So I think all of this boils down to, in a lot of ways a lack of faith in the church. And so I think we, we need to continue to talk about this. Jason, thanks for coming on your book, uh, the making of evangelical spirituality. I got mine on Amazon. I assume that's the best place for people to pick it up. Yes. Probably. Yeah. Probably so. Um, and, and like I said, uh, you know, like, like we said, I think this is especially a helpful tool for pastors because, um, it's, it's giving you lots of language, lots of examples, lots of history, uh, and, and theology um, to really talk about and understand these, diff- these these where these things came from, why it is the church thinks and talks this way, and I think that's that's really really helpful and practical. So, thanks for coming on the show, Jason. Yes, thanks and, for having and, me on. And, Great to have you, Jason. Yeah, the Lord told me we should have you on again. So <laughs> that's right. Argue. Let's God. do it. Let's do it. Awesome. Hey guys, have a great uh, rest of your day, and we'll we'll talk to you again soon. The Got A Minute Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy one of our other podcasts, The Good Life Podcast, featuring Matt Carpenter interviewing experts in their field about how their work contributes to the good life.